Hello, my name is Amy Dodson, um, and I'm still searching for a community group. <laughs> and I will be reading from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And the word of the Lord says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I have the privilege of introducing our speaker to you this morning. Our speaker does not need an introduction. As you know him very well, not only is a founding elder of Christ Central Church, but former staff member here, Pastor Omari Hill, will be our speaker as he comes up to speak. Just real quickly, for those who do not know him, Pastor Omari is a pastor, a person who loves to pastor people, and he has pastored me. He's on my number one speed dial, especially during this sabbatical when I call him up with any questions I have about life ministry. He's like that with Child of Faith and Work that he's part of now, making sense of what it means to work and how your faith plays out in that. Furthermore, many of you have benefited from his loving counsel. More than anything else, as he comes up to speak, I believe Pastor Omari embodies Ezra 7.10, where it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and then to teach it, his statutes and rules in Israel. I believe that's what he will do this morning. So without further ado, let's welcome him with round of applause. Thank you, brother. So gracious words. Um, this morning, I have the privilege of continuing this series that we've been going through as a church. So we've been exploring not just the gospel of Mark, but particularly looking at the king that Mark talks to us about. What was Jesus as king? What was he all about? Who was he? And the particular things that we learn as we listen to Mark. If we've been paying attention to the past few chapters, we see that Jesus is actually now on his way toward Jerusalem. And this is a pretty big deal because we know what is waiting for him in Jerusalem. Eventually, what he's going to do is to die on the cross. And on his way there, you would think like, okay, well, this is a savior. And he's going to face something incredible. He's going to do something that will glorify the Father in a way that no one has ever seen anyone glorify the Father before in their lives. And that this, what he would do, would change the entire world, would change all of history. You would think it would be smooth sailing. But no, for Jesus, there's opposition along the way. And so if you've been paying attention in the first few chapters leading up to this, you see that he's, 
he has, he has arguments. He's approached by the religious leaders of his day. And so he had been approached by the Pharisees who were coming to him. Uh, he had been approached by Sadducees who had also came to him afterwards. And all this stuff, all these arguments are going down in the temple. Okay, so just imagine, right, you came to church today, those of you who are here in person, you came and, you know, and you were like, okay, I'm not, you're not expecting any conflict. You're just coming to worship God, to learn more about God. Perhaps maybe you're not a Christian yet, and you're curious, and you're not expecting that somebody is going to step to your face and challenge you, right, and, and start asking you all kinds of hard questions. You're like, whoa, wait, I'm just in here to, to worship, you know, I'm not expecting to get into a fight, but this is what happens to Jesus when he goes into the temple. Well, part of it is sort of his fault, because if you go back and you see, he started turning tables, right? So, uh, you know, Jesus gets angry, starts knocking stuff over, but for good reason, and we heard about that the other week. But this, we now get to this scene where this scribe, who is also, as we learned from Matthew's gospel, is actually, he's a member of the Pharisees. And so, uh, but a scribe is, for those of you who don't know, is a teacher of the law, in a particular law, that is the law of God. So this is someone who is well studied in God's law, and he's already witnessed how Jesus answered the dealt with the questions and the objections from this Pharisee and then later on from the Sadducee. And he's, he's, he's pretty impressed. And he's like, all right, I got something for him now. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring something here. And this might get him. Right? And I think when you look at this scribe, you could say that he was in many respects genuine, I would say. That, you know, this was someone who, I mean, if you have, you know, speaking as someone who is, a Presbyterian, we like to get into theological arguments. You know, at some level, it's kind of fun, right? We get into it. Now, those of you who are like, oh my gosh, what? That just sounds terrible. That sounds like I would never want to get into theological arguments. That sounds boring, right? But, um, but for, for these guys and for some people like me, we like to get into some discussions sometimes and just kind of like, well, is this really what the Bible said? And what did you think about this? And what do you learn about Jesus here? And here's my perspective. What's your perspective? Let's push back on that a little bit. And then hopefully by the end of it, right, there's unity and that sort of deal. And, and everybody's sort of hugging each other at the end of that. But this is not what this scribe expected. He wasn't expecting to get closer to Jesus, although he was genuinely engaging Jesus in a theological conversation. I think what we see here, what we see here is, number one, a man who has questions about commandments. Right? That's pretty clear. He has questions about God's law. Which one is the most important? Right? He asked Jesus. So he's clearly interested in that. But then if you notice toward the end of this passage, Jesus touches on something that this man is also interested in, a second thing, and that is the path to the kingdom. The path to the kingdom. He tells him this thing at the very end, after he's gone through this whole sort of theological discussion, he says, you are not far from the kingdom. So naturally, as I read these verses, I thought of Loki. Surprise, surprise. Um, so, you know, those of you who don't know me that well, I'm a big Marvel fan, but I'm just a big comic book fan and stuff like that anyway. But, you know, I, I kind of liken this a little bit to Loki, and here's why. 
Because I think what we see here is someone who is on a spiritual journey. And if you've watched this series that's premiered on Disney+, Plus, you can see also there that the, Loki, the Lokis are also on a spiritual journey of sorts. Right? I mean, it's, here is someone that has some questionable origins and has been uh, on this path of trying to figure out his glorious purpose. Right? What is my glorious purpose? It has permeated his entire life, this question has, and maybe it has for you. What is my purpose? Why am I here? What is, is there a path that can get me toward that? Right? And so we, we, look, we look at Loki, and we see that you know, eventually his path leads him toward this person who is only known as he who remains. Okay? And, but in, in some ways, the path of this scribe has led him to Jesus has led him to Christ. Now, most religions, I think they teach us that our glorious purpose is found in walking a particular path, whether that's a path that is prescribed from our own souls, it comes from our own hearts, or whether it's given to us from someone else. But Jesus tells this scribe that he is not far from the kingdom. What path are you on this morning? What path have you been on for the past few years of your life? To where or who is that path taking you? Matthew's gospel, again, tells us that this scribe was testing Jesus, but he was also on a path. that He sincerely wants to be on a path that pleases God so that he will see God and live in his kingdom. Whether we think that Jesus is the way or not, many desire that path, that same path that will lead us to God, and to his kingdom. So, the scribe asked Jesus, how do you please God, Rabbi? How do you do it? And Jesus responds that the path to God is paved by love. The path to God is paved by love. So that if we will walk that path that will lead us to God, then we must hold to what love requires. So I'm going to talk about two particular things. I only have two points this morning. That if we would walk that path that would lead us to God, we must hold to what love requires. And it requires that we remember two things. Who we love matters and the way we love matters. We have to hold on to both of those things. Who we love matters. Now, some of you who are sitting here heard me say that statement, who we love matters, and that may have just made you a little bit nervous um, given current discussions about um, sexuality and marriages and so forth. I will not speak on any of those things today, so you can rest easy. Okay, that's, that's a different kind of sermon, different discussion, that's all, but that's not this morning. But, so, but, but obviously, if we are walking any kind of path, and particularly this path that is going to lead us to God, then we must learn how to love God himself. If it's a path that's going to lead us to God, then we have to learn how to love God himself. And, and you know, we, we give ourselves to things like meditation and church attendance and to giving and to evangelism as ways of loving God. And any good relationship that we're in is going to require some amount of intimacy, right? And so we want to pursue that with the Lord as well. We intuitively know that 
whether practiced or not, that we have to get to a place where we can slow down and become aware of God's presence and his activity in our lives. As an act of love, we learn how to listen to God. And just like in any other relationship in which we are developing intimacy, we learn how to listen to one another. How many relationships have collapsed simply because folk wouldn't listen to each other? Listening appears to be at the center of love for God. I'll say that again. Listening appears to be at the center, the very center of love for God. Let me back that up a little bit. So when this scribe, when he, when he asks which commandment is the most important, look at verse 29. It says to us, he asked, so the scribe asked Jesus the question, and then Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So notice there that Jesus didn't say, no, O Israel, right? He says, here. In other words, listen. And those of you who have been in church for a while and sort of maybe you've read this, you know what Jesus is referencing here. You know that he is referencing the Shema. And that word Shema means listen. And, it's a, and it refers to this commandment. And this commandment is something that every faithful Hebrew community would have known and have recited since the days of Moses. And so the Shema means more than receiving information about God, but it means hearing with the intent to act. So some of you who are parents, right, you, you know it gets frustrating sometimes and your kids aren't listening to what you're telling them. Oh, you heard me, but you're not listening, right? There's a difference there. So there's this, we receive the information already with the intent to act on that information that is received. God calls us to listen to him. If we would grow in love for him, if we would love God, then we must listen to him. It has to be a defining part of our walk. Not just something that is tangential to it, but it has to be central to our walk with God. This is one of the reasons why getting quiet it's such an important part of Christian spirituality. Many of you have been a part of different ministries or groups over the years, and some have given you instruction in quiet times or time alone with God, you know, things of that nature. And that's, there's a good reason for that, because it is central to developing a spiritual life, particularly in the Christian faith. I would think that many other religions would teach the same thing as well, that there is something about learning how to become quiet, Others would use the word maybe centering yourself, becoming aware of what God, what the divine is doing within you and around you, right? So that, um, not so that you just receive information, but that you are ready to act on that information, to listen. We have to be in a place where we can both hear and act. And if we're doing it right, then we can listen to God while we're reading scripture, yet we can also listen to God as the day's events unravel at school or at our jobs, in conversations, and in interactions with total strangers, and so on and so on. It's what a Brother Lawrence once called practicing the presence of God. If we would learn to love God, who is everywhere, then 
Am I willing to listen to him anywhere? That's a good question for us to ask, right? To hold sometimes. If, if, if I would learn to love God who is everywhere, then am I ready to listen to him anywhere? Not all the time, if we're honest. Right? If he, he wants us to love him with a heart, with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And we look at that commandment and if we're honest, we see that that's pretty tough. That's a tough one. Right? So our path requires removing any obstacle that may be there that would stop us from loving God with our whole person. And while Jesus takes our emotional wounds and the burdens of this world very seriously, it is plain to him that our biggest obstacle is the harsh and deceptive, corrupting disposition of love of self, which is found in every human heart. That is what the scriptures refer to as our sinful nature. By love of self, I'm not talking about a proper self-esteem. I'm not talking about confidence. Those things are good. But by love of self, I'm talking about promoting yourself above God and above other people. It's a stubborn part of who we are. It traps us up all the time and constantly acts as an obstacle as we are trying to learn how to love God with our whole person. So in addition to practicing virtues, those who have sought to love God have also given themselves to dealing with their own sin. That becomes a part of the work when you're on this path of love, particularly as you're thinking about what it means to love God. Then you begin to deal with your sin to figure out, like, how, do I, how does this become less and less of a thing in my life? How can it diminish? How can maybe by God's grace even be eradicated so that I don't even have to deal with it anymore? It means to intentionally develop practices and make decisions that will displace the love of self and form habits of self-giving love. Right? It, could our world actually become a better place if more people were committed to this path of love for God? One would think so. And one would hope so. And yet it's not always the case. And Jesus knew it. Too many people have devoted themselves to the spiritual life and have failed on a key point. That is this. Our inward piety must have an outward reality. Our inward piety must have an outward reality. Listen to Jesus. He tells us that love of God means that our inward piety will have an outward reality. Back to verse 29. Uh, actually, I'll start at the end of uh, 28. Where the, the scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But then he says this, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The path of love requires both loving God and our neighbor. Both 
are required. And what Jesus said was a big deal to this religious community because it, and if we read it too quickly, we might miss it. But you might think, okay, that's obvious, right? You, know, you love God and you love other people. Yeah, you, you need to do that, right? But, uh, but what Jesus does here is he makes both of them equal to each other, right? I mean, you could say, uh, you know, one law was more important than another, right? You know, I mean, this was a, a, a hot topic of debate during Jesus' day, right? So with these scribes, it's part of what is driving this scribe and asking this question. Because in this, among these religious leaders, they were already wrestling with this question, like, could you look at one law and say this one is more important than another law? Or like, or some laws maybe are not, um, maybe we don't have to deal with those as much as we must focus on other laws. But then if you can do that, how do you determine which law is weightier than the other? And what Jesus uh, was saying was challenging because it was so easy for folk, right, to put, as we know, nothing but worship songs on in their car as they're driving while also cussing out drivers on the road, right? I mean, don't you find that to be an incredible, like, that's an oxymoron. Like, it just doesn't work. Um, So, right, loving others is a huge thing for Jesus, Right? He, and he had a tussle once with the, with the scribes over this very point. Back in uh, Matthew 23, verse 23 there, um, he, says, he says to you, he says to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Hey, both are important. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You ought to do both. The beloved disciple, John, who walked with Jesus, will later reiterate this very point that Jesus made when he wrote, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. And then, you know, so John says it here. Jesus says it in the passage that is before us. And, it, and this is amazing. They both use the word, when speaking of love of God and love of neighbor, they use the word commandment, singular, not commandments, plural. Right? And then Jesus says, there is no other commandment greater than these, than these two things. In other words, these two together make the great commandment, the greatest commandment. So if we would love God, we must learn to love our neighbor. And if we would learn to love our neighbor, we must love to learn God. Now, I mean, some people get it twisted in our day. We think that we can just go about loving our neighbor without loving God. That's probably the biggest struggle, I would think, in our culture today is that is if, if we would err on any side of this, and I guess throughout history, you kind of see the pendulum swing a little bit, but I, I would think that in our day, we typically think, oh, I can love my neighbor just fine without loving God. Forget about that, right? But yet, one of the reasons why so many pe- people give up on learning how to love God is because of the folk who say, I'm going to love God without loving my neighbor. Like, that, 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 that's, that's unimportant. So people get jaded, Right? And, 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 and their love for God is disrupted 
by this corruption and, and love that they see within the church, and so they walk away. If you want nothing to do with the kingdom of God, then none of this stuff matters. It really doesn't. But if you do desire the kingdom, then you must hold both of these loves together in your life. So the path to God and his kingdom requires love. And love is difficult. Love is not easy. Sometimes it's very joyful, and there are moments in which it, it does feel natural. And there are many times in which it requires a lot of work. But it's worth it. All right, so great. We got that. Love. Okay, I can do that. I can do love. Right? That, that's easy. Yeah, if, that's, if that's what God is calling for, if that's the virtue, uh, if that's the chief thing, all right, I can figure out how to do that. That's great. But, but is it that easy? Here's the other thing we need to remember is that the way of love matters. And I, I, I think, you know, when, when Jesus answers this scribe and he, he speaks of love, uh, he's also summarizing God's law. And so that, that part is important. We need to see that. Now, when he's speaking about God's love, he is also summarizing God's law. So essentially, God's law ought to be observed with love in our hearts, and the love in our hearts ought to be shaped by God's law. I'll say that part again, that, that God's law ought to be observed with love in our hearts. So that, that's one side of it. But also the love that we exercise right, from our hearts ought to be shaped by God's law. Again, we're seeing it's both and. In other words, Jesus' summary is saying that true love is loving God and loving neighbor in God's way. Okay, so, you know, many times we'll instruct one another to listen to our hearts. That old 80 song, listen to your heart, right? You know, right? We just, we just listen to our hearts whenever faced with a big decision. And we just tell ourselves, hey, look, just trust your heart. But what if the way we love has some serious flaws? And if it does, how will we know? The way that we measure our love, the way that we know its quality, is through God's law. In Romans 13, it tells us this. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, here's the issue. I mean, that's beautiful. The, the, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You want to know how to fulfill the law? The law, love one another. One of the issues, though, is as you go into the scriptures and begin to learn about God's law, there's about 613 commandments there, okay, and th that are all given in the books of Moses. And in and, and all of them, Jesus is saying, prescribe some specific ways in which we are to love God and to love our neighbor. Many of us are familiar, we may not be familiar with all 613 of those, those bad boys, but at least 10 of them, right? We know the 10, hopefully, right? So love fulfills and it satisfies even those commandments rather than throwing them away, right? Love fulfills God's law rather than throw it away. So when you really try loving in God's way, 
right? You're holding his law before you, his commandments, and you try to practice them, then how can you say love is easy? It's, it's really difficult when you try to practice the law of God. I'll give you some examples just to help us out, just to kind of flesh this out a little bit. So two, two easy examples from the Ten Commandments. We'll just go there to sort of illustrate my point. We can look at a so-called traditional law, and then we'll look at a so-called progressive law. How about we do that? So here's a more traditional one, okay? So this is from Deuteronomy chapter 5, one of the, one of the places in which you'll find the Ten Commandments. Verse 18, you all know this, hopefully, and you shall not commit adultery. All right, that's a commandment. That's in there, right? Did God really, does God really care about adultery and things of that nature? Yes, he does. It's in there. It's in the Bible, okay? Now, we're not in the 1960s anymore, right? But we still live in a culture of so-called free love. It's still there. Many of our neighbors and perhaps some of us online or in here this morning have joined or supported the so-called hookup culture. And as long as you consent people say, and you desire one another, then right, who really cares if you're sleeping, if who you're sleeping with isn't your spouse? Who really cares? As long as, you, as, long as it's, it's consensual and you guys care for each other, even in that little moment when you're just having a little fun, like, uh, okay, sure, who cares? But I think if you're, not just think, I know from God's word that if you are committed to the path, of God's love, then you must choose to reserve sex as a gift to your spouse. That's God's word, right? If we haven't said I do, then we don't. <laughs> right? Is that a tweetable thing to put that one? If we haven't said I do, then we don't, okay? But, you know, but, but just restraining from sexual actions out of love for my neighbor um, doesn't mean that you're that you're, that you're all already there, that you're good. I mean, you're, that, that is good. That's a good place, right? That's good. But and, am I good? Am I, am I there? Have I satisfied the commandment? Well, almost, because then Jesus raises the bar. When he said, in Matthew 5, he said this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, he's addressing men as he's talking to them, but, but well, I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. So it turns out that love is not only about our actions, but also our thoughts. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. That's a tough one, right? Um, loving as God loves requires work from the depth of our being. All right, so that's the more, that's the sort of a traditional commandment. Let me look at a more progressive one, okay? Just one that's more oriented toward justice, okay? So uh, in verse 20 in Deuteronomy 5, we, we see this. The Lord said, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, Right? This commandment clearly speaks to issues of justice in the legal system of Israel as it does to ours in our own day. This wasn't just about um, you know, a personal relationships. This tells us that God hates when people abuse any legal system to make anyone that they've wronged look bad so that they can get away from giving what is owed. 
Right, so God cares deeply about that. And as you could imagine, this kind of advantage would come fairly easily to those who have all the resources. That is, the well-connected, the powerful, the wealthy, and so on. And so embedded in this command is love for the poor, for the oppressed, for the downtrodden. You get it. Much is required of those who have a lot. And we rightly call out those who use their resources to exploit rather than to bless those who do not have a lot. The path of love requires justice and not contributing to its corruption. Easy, right? Maybe not easy to do, but, you know, easy to say amen to, right, to get, get on board with. But how often now do we engage in gossip? How much tea has been spilled by our hands? Right? It, isn't this also bearing false witness against our neighbor? Doesn't it hurt their, their reputation, hurt their character in the long run? Doesn't it give you the advantage to put somebody down, you know, to share some dirt? Ooh, right? Yeah, but some people deserve it, we might say. Hmm. Maybe. Yet I heard Jesus say, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus raises the bar. So we're engaged in justice, whether it's in a legal system or in our own homes. Are we loving our enemies? Are we praying for them? Are we praying for those who persecute us? Are we engaged in fighting back with our tongues? to tear them down rather than to deliver them into the just hands of God. It's not enough just to love, but we must love God in his way. And we must love our neighbor in his way if we're to walk his path and to please him. Now, I, you know, I don't doubt that this scribe was trying his best throughout most of his life. I mean, he's a pretty religious guy, pretty spiritual guy. He understood that a heart which loves God and loves neighbor in God's way, right? You look at what he says to Jesus. He understands that a heart which loves God and loves neighbor in God's way is actually worth more than any whole burnt offerings or sacrifices that we could ever offer. And it's beautiful that he mentions you know, those two things, these burnt offerings and sacrifices, because remember this conversation is happening in the temple. And so what's happening, right, as they're having this conversation, they can probably hear the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of the cow as these animals are being sacrificed in the temple. And as he hears these animals suffering, right, for, um, for the, the, the sake of this, this cultist that's being practiced right before their eyes, he hears Jesus' words and he says, you have said right, teacher. Right? Loving God and neighbor in the way that God desires us to do it is worth much more than these offerings and much more than these sacrifices. But the problem is Jesus has also told us that only the pure in heart shall see God. And if we're not real, about the impurity that is in each of our hearts, then we will attempt to please God 
out of fear, to please God out of guilt, right? Oh, God, you know, I got all this stuff in here. I got to hide. I got to manipulate, right? Or sheer pride. It's just, I'm not that bad. I got this. You know, I can, sure, I ought to see God face to face. I'm good. The scribe was close to the kingdom, but not yet in. Here's a devout religious leader who is still disqualified from entering into God's kingdom. This should be a little troubling to us, right? If we really look at this, especially if we don't picture, let's say, like a greedy pastor, right? But instead, picture rather a benevolent, generous, and clearly spiritual person that's in your own life, maybe, right? Picture that person. Here's a, someone who could be disqualified from entering God's kingdom. Who can truly achieve purity of heart as Jesus here defines it? Who can truly love God and love neighbor as God desires? The answer comes to us in the very place in which they stand, which is the temple. See, the temple represented the presence of God on earth. And it was this very location, again, where Jesus was having this conversation with the scribe and with, uh, before that, Sadducees and before him, other Pharisees. And through ceremonial sacrifices, the people were temporarily cleansed of their sin and made pure in God's sight. It's a provision that the Lord made for his people. The whole burnt offerings, the sacrifices, the grain offerings, all the different things that we learn about as we read books like Leviticus and others and the books of the law, all those things were given from the Lord as a provision for his people so that they might be made pure in his sight and be cleansed from their sin. The path of God has always depended on God's provision rather than our devotion. It's always depended on what he gives to us rather than what we can give to him. His provision should be what sustains, animates, and shapes our devotion, not the other way around. And I think that is what has happened to this scribe. He got it twisted. He thought that it was his devotion that would make him deserve God's provision. But rather, it's receiving God's provision that drives our devotion to him. He's arguing with Jesus in the temple, thinking that devotion could secure God's provision rather than receive what God was providing. And he should be free, as all of us should be, to simply say, only in your goodness, God, can I be good. Only in your love, O oh God, can I love. We love because he first loved us, the apostle says. And this is a tragedy, that divine goodness and love was staring this man in the face, standing right before him in the flesh, and he rejected him. Something was wrong. Something was wrong with the eyes of his heart that he could not see and accept God's provision to cleanse him from every sin. What about you, 
What do you make of Jesus? Which path are you on this morning? Is it a path of love driven by your own devotion, or is it one that is driven by God's provision of love for you? Look at what Jesus, God in the flesh, has done for everyone who believes. First, he became the temple itself, becoming in himself heaven on earth. Then he walked the path of love for God and neighbor as one of us, yet without sin. Then he died on the cross, burned as a burnt offering under the wrath of God for our sin. And finally, he rose from the dead to purify us through his sacrifice, granting us forgiveness to deliver what the Father had promised long ago when he said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A pure heart is first achieved for us so that the Holy Spirit may come and dwell within us. We just sang about this. It is only by the work of Jesus and the ongoing work of the Spirit that we can grow in our devotion to God and neighbor in God's way. God has to do a work within us. God must provide from us, and as we receive it, as we are purified by the work of Jesus, and then, right, we are made, we are cleansed, and then filled. And we are cleansed. Right? We, get, we have clarity of heart. And then we are filled. We not only become aware of God's presence, but we are united with him by his spirit. And as that happens within us, then we are set free as imperfect people, imperfect, right, to learn how to walk this path of love that God calls us to, to learn how to love God and neighbor in God's way. And here's the grand and spectacular thing that is happening. And you who are believing, you who are God's beloved, listen to what the Apostle Paul later explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says this, Do you not know that you, are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells within you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. That's hard to believe sometimes, isn't it? But did you hear that? Having been cleansed from our sin and filled with the Holy Spirit, we have become the church has become God's temple if indeed we belong to Jesus. There can be no purpose more glorious than that. To be the temple of God on earth. Yet it is precisely what is granted to us if we walk the path of love in Christ. If we walk this path, we will surely enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the vision of the kingdom that the glory of God, his truth, his beauty, and his goodness will fill the entire earth. And that kingdom becomes a reality when all people everywhere become God's temple. We become his priests who naturally serve him and one another without pride, without pure, without, uh, without, without fear, 
but only love. Pure love. Do you want, do you desire the king who will purify you and have your whole heart? Then friends, you are not far from the kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we desire many things in our lives. And you have hidden within us a desire for you. So often we have followed that desire to counterfeit gods. We've gone to wrong places, Lord. And we've thought that we've been loving and loving in the right way. But we've been focused the whole time on the wrong person. Teach us how to love you, Lord. Teach us how to orient our hearts towards you. And maybe today, maybe the first time in a long time in which maybe we've been invited by you, God, to, to slow down and to listen to you, to hear you, so that we would hear from, you, from heaven and be willing to act. Lord, may you show us today, lead us today into that first and important action always, which is to run to you and to receive your provision for us, which you gladly give us every single day, not just today, but through all of our lives, from here all the way into heaven. Lord, give us a sense of your presence, and would you purify our hearts that we would be willing to follow you wherever you lead us, and to do it, not out of pride, not out of fear, but out of love because you have first loved us. We thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.